Father, we praise you. We praise you that you are at work among the people of this world. You are at work among the nations of this earth. And Lord, we thank you that we get to have a part to partner with brothers and sisters who are in contexts that are very different than our own, serving, laboring faithfully day in and day out. Thank you for allowing us to partner with them to share the love and the gospel of Jesus Christ with men, women, and children among the people groups of this earth. And Lord, I pray for power today that the Holy Spirit of Almighty God would raise up a powerful witness among the dark places of this world to the glory of Jesus and the salvation of souls. Lord, I pray that before Jesus comes again, we would have the joy of seeing a great awakening, not only in this nation, but among the nations. Lord, I pray that you would thrill our hearts, cause our hearts to beat fast when we think about Christ being proclaimed today in the darkest places of this world for the glory of your name and the good of your people. And Lord, as we bow before you today, we pray that you would stir our hearts to see your grace, that we would love you and serve you and respond to you as our glorious King. And I pray that you would teach the scripture to us today. Father, I acknowledge I cannot do what you alone are able to do. And we pray that you would show up and do what only you are able to do among us today. Fill us with your spirit. Teach us your word. Change and transform us to the very likeness of Jesus. And may we sing and glorify your praise as we go. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. We're going to continue our study of the book of Daniel that we began last week. And before we dig into our text, I do want to give you two major themes that we just began to discuss last week in Daniel chapter 1. The first theme is this. The kingdoms of this world are in conflict with the kingdom of God. That's a theme that's all throughout the book of Daniel. Chapter 1 begins with Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, waging war against the king of Judah there at the city of Jerusalem. And in the process, four young Jewish men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken captive to live in exile in this kingdom known as Babylon. Well, that historical conflict we saw is a representative. It's a part of a greater conflict that will occur until Jesus comes again. And so not only do we learn about what happened thousands of years ago in that conflict through the lives of Daniel and his friends, we actually learn how we are able to live faithfully as part of the kingdom of God, even while we're surrounded by the darkness of Babylon. And we saw last week those similar themes that are occurring in our day and time that let us know we are living in Babylon. We are living in a kingdom that's in conflict where the kingdoms of this age are opposing the work of God in your life and mine and in our community. And so we learn how to live faithfully in kingdoms that are in conflict against God's kingdom by watching the lives of Daniel and his friends. But Daniel is not the primary figure of this book. God is. And that brings us to the second theme that we saw and we'll continue to see throughout this book. While kingdoms are in chaos... God is in control. 
Guys, God is at work right now. He's at work in this place on this day. He's at work in our nation and among the nations of this earth. And here's what God is doing. He is establishing his eternal, victorious kingdom that cannot be shaken no matter how hard the kingdoms of this earth may oppose him. God is in control. That's good news, isn't it? Well, it is. So with that in mind and those themes being the backdrop to our whole study, let's look at the next passage in Daniel and I'll let you know. I'm going to be going through verses 1 through 30. And if you've been around here for a while, you know it's hard for me to take one verse at a time, let alone 30. So we could be here till Jesus comes again. This should be fun. I'll take a little chunk at a time, give you a couple of observations, and then we'll head to the big idea and just unpack that big idea of this text together. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 is where we'll begin. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we'll show you the interpretation. Okay, stop right there. There's a really important change that occurs in verse 4. It says that the magicians are speaking to the king in Aramaic. Now, Aramaic is the most common language used throughout the Near East at this time. All business, all trade, all official documentation would have occurred in Aramaic. And it says they speak to the king in Aramaic. And I don't know how many of you are reading out of English Bibles. I'm assuming all of you are. You won't see something that actually happens in the original text. Because in the original text, the actual language of the text changes from Hebrew to Aramaic, and it stays written in Aramaic all the way through chapter 7. And so when he says they answered in Aramaic, Daniel actually stops writing in Hebrew at this point, and he starts writing in Aramaic, the common language throughout that whole region of the world at that time. And the question becomes, why would Daniel write that section of this book in Aramaic And then in chapter 8, he'll go on to write in Hebrew. Well, let's just think about it for a moment. Remember who Daniel is. He's the guy who, in just a little bit, is going to be appointed to one of the highest positions of leadership and authority in the kingdom of Babylon. And so he takes the platform that he has as one of the highest leaders of this kingdom, and he writes this account down. And the next several chapters down in the common language of the kingdom of Babylon. Why would he do that? Well, it seems likely that Daniel wants the whole world to know the truths about God that we're going to see in these chapters. Truths about Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the future of the world. Truths about who God is and how God works. So here Daniel writes... Not just to the other Jews, but to the kingdoms of the world at his time. The rest of this account, pick up in verse 5. The king answered and said to Chaldeans, 
The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain more time. I know this is just a stall tactic because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Okay, stop right there. Nebuchadnezzar's clearly troubled. Probably has some mental issues based on what I'm seeing there in the text. But he doesn't know what this mysterious dream means. He just knows it is too important not to get right. So he lays down a pretty savvy challenge to these magicians, right? If y'all are magicians, then work some magic. Tell me what my dream means without me telling you what my dream is. Because if you can... Tell me what my dream is, you'll know what my dream means. And you find out that men like Nebuchadnezzar don't mess around, right? If they can't do what he's demanding, he promises to tear them limb from limb. I'm pretty sure that qualifies as cruel and unusual punishment, but that's not the point. Notice how the magicians respond in verse 10. And verse 10 is a critical turning point in our text. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth... Who can meet the king's demand? For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the little G-gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Okay, think about what's happening here really quickly, all right? Do you remember what the name Babel means? It means confusion. And Babylon then is the kingdom of godless confusion. And that godless confusion is on full display here in verses 10 and 11. There's a confusion over what these men are able to do and what they've offered. I mean, Daniel, or I mean, Nebuchadnezzar saying, hey, you guys are magicians. Show me some magic. And they're like, what makes you think we can do this? And Neb's like, well, you told me you were magicians. And they're like, well, we only identify as magicians. We can't actually do magic. And even more, They're confused because they think there's more than one God, right? And they think that no God, even of all the gods, makes his dwelling among men. I mean, they're saying, clearly, none of us have access to a God like that. What do you think we're supposed to do, Neb? Call on some God and ask him to do us a favor? Like, we just have those kinds of inroads with a God In, in, in literature, There's a technical term for what's going on here. It's called a setup, all right? A setup inside of narrative is a moment that's setting up the main point of the story. And verses 10 and 11 are the setup in this narrative of Scripture because there's truth that's being alluded to here, even in the midst of all their confusion. The truth is there's only one true God, not many gods, And he, as the one true God, has indeed chosen to make his dwelling 
among men. Where did God dwell in the Old Testament? We talked about it last week. Where did he dwell in the Old Testament? In the temple. Where was the temple? In Jerusalem. Where was Daniel's hometown? Jerusalem. In the midst of all this confusion, the magicians did finally get something right, though. No man on earth could do what Nebuchadnezzar demanded. What you would need is a direct line to a real and true God. They're setting up the foundation of the main point. Now let's just keep reading verses 12 and 16. Verse 12 says, Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the king went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them because they were a part of those wise men. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Stop right there. Ancient historical records reveal that Nebuchadnezzar had failed anger management classes when he was younger. He flies off the handle. He demands that all of the wise men, all of them, even the ones who weren't in that room at the time, like Daniel and his friends, be immediately killed because he has to know what his dream means. And just like we saw in chapter 1, Daniel asks that he might be given just a little bit more time so that he could give room for God to show up. Now, remember, the so-called wisest men in the world have established a fact. No man on earth can do what the king demanded. Only a God could do it. But none of them had access to that kind of God. And here's where the story turns, and here's how our main point will be shown. Daniel is a different kind of man. He was born in the city where God dwelled among his people. He knows who God is. He knows what God's like. He knows what God is capable of doing. And he actually believes that he does have access to that kind of God and can indeed ask him for a favor. So notice what he does next. And we'll finish out our text verses 17 through 30. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's the Hebrew names for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His companions. And told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God, my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to them, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I'll show the king the interpretation." 
Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. Now look at verse 28. Verses 10 and 11, that was a setup right here is the main point. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me... This mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living. I love he's not taking credit for anything here, right? But in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. This is the word of God for us today. And I just tell you, you're going to have to come back next week if you want to hear about Nebuchadnezzar's dream and what it means. Believe me, it's a doozy. I mean, it's a doozy. You're going to want to be here next week. But for this morning, I just want you to see the point of this section of chapter two. Think about what we've just looked at. The most powerful man in the entire world is doing everything in his power to get his heart's desire. So then he looks to the wisest, most intelligent, insightful people in his whole kingdom for the answer, and they can't provide it. And then a man of the kingdom of God steps in, and he has access to a deeper and stronger power than the kingdoms of this world. He goes before God. He asks for mercy, and guess what? God gives mercy. God shows up. God makes the impossible possible. He does what no man and no one else in this world can do. Through Daniel, God teaches Nebuchadnezzar and the magicians And all of the people who would read this in Aramaic, their natural tongue, they see in this account the truth that God wants you to see and me to see today. And that truth is our big idea. Here's the big idea for today. Only God can do what only God can do. I know what you're thinking. Is he always this profound? Yeah, I am. There is a God in heaven, friend, and only he can do what only God can do. Now, you might think that's a no-brainer. You might think that it is so simple that I can't possibly be serious to make that the big idea. That's exactly what this section in Daniel is telling us because the people of this world are just as confused as Nebuchadnezzar and all the people in our text. Did you know that there is a world filled with modern-day Nebuchadnezzars who are looking for something that only God can do and they're looking everywhere but to God? Like Nebuchadnezzar, they're restless and they're weary and they're frustrated and they're buying into the false advertisement of this world that promises to do a kind of magic that will help them, a kind of magic that will fulfill them, a kind of magic that will give them hope and peace and rest, a kind of magic that fails every time it's put to the test. People are looking for meaning, 
and satisfaction and lasting pleasure. They're trying to heal their deepest wounds and find rest for their weary souls. They have a constant gnawing, a craving deep in their heart, day after day, night after night. And this world advertises a kind of magic that promises to give them their deepest desire, the magic of power or popularity or wealth or sex or entertainment, or pornography, or drugs, or religion, or relationships, or 10,000 other brands of magic that promise to meet your deepest need and touch and heal your deepest hurt. And it fails to deliver every time it's put to the test. And I've got to tell you, I know I'm looking out in a room full of people who are living in Babylon and are bombarded with the promise of a new kind of magic our world will offer. A kind of salve for what hurts your heart. A kind of power to overcome what you've been trapped in your whole life. They are the same old lies. Don't buy the lie. Hear the word of God. Only God can do what only God can do. Only God can satisfy the deepest longing of your heart. Only God can give you meaning and purpose and lasting pleasure. Only God can thrill your soul and heal your deepest hurts. The magic of this world is nothing but a two-bit illusion, friend, and there are no substitutes for God. Only God can do what only God can do. And Daniel provides us a picture of what it actually looks like when you believe that truth. So here's what I want to do in the rest of our time. I want to focus on three things that we see in this chapter in the life of Daniel and his friends that show us what it looks like to live like people who actually believe that only God can do. People in this room who believe, but we have a God in heaven and we're going to live Like we believe there is a God in heaven who can do what only God can do. What's that look like? Well, let me give you three things from the text that we just read. Number one, we live like we have a God in heaven who can do what only God can do when we look to God in prayer. Look at verses 17 and 18. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, And told them, now look what they do, they have an old-fashioned prayer meeting. And told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So that Daniel and his companions may not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Do you see what happens here? In the face of circumstances that are beyond the power of any man, Daniel and his friends turned to God to prayer. In chapter 6 we find this isn't some one-off thing in the life of Daniel. In chapter 6, you'll find, and we'll look at it when we get there, that Daniel is a man who's so convinced that only God can do what only God can do that he spends three times every day in a season of passionate, persistent prayer, no matter what. That's the point of chapter 6. And do you know why he did that? Because he believed that only God could do what only God can do. And you want to know why so many of us have such an anemic prayer life? Because we believe that someone else can do what only God can do. Our leaders, our spouses, our children, ourselves, we look 
to us, to them, because we believe that we can do something that truly only God can do. Let me give you an example. The only hope for America, and I want to say this clearly, the only hope for America is a work of the mercy of God. Do you believe that, church? The only hope for America. Now, I want to give you a little asterisk caveat just to save us both a few emails over the week. There's no doubt that God uses leaders, and there's no doubt that we should seek the best leadership available. We should vote for leaders, I believe, who represent the values of God's kingdom. I believe that. Did you hear me say that I believe that? All right, then we don't need to email over that one. But I don't want to be confusing about anything. The only hope for this nation is the mercy of God. Here's what that means then. It means that Donald Trump can't make America good again, let alone great again. And it means that Joe Biden can't build back better. And it means that Ron DeSantis won't, Ron DeSantis won't save Florida, let alone America. And it means that Brevard County school boards need more than just a few school board members to be replaced. It means that only God can do what only God can do. The only hope for this nation is the mercy of Almighty God. The only hope for this community is the mercy of Almighty God. The only hope for the broken marriages in this room is the mercy of an Almighty God. The only hope for your prodigal child is the mercy of an almighty God. The only hope for your own soul and brokenness and deep, deep longing is the mercy of an almighty God. So let me ask you this, friend. Are evangelical Christians in this nation known more for a passion for political action or a passion for persistent prayer? Let me just ask you this. What about the evangelical Christians who are going to ride in your car home today? If you asked your kids, are mom and dad more convinced that this nation needs a movement of the mercy of God so they seek his face in prayer? Or do they believe more that they need a political action movement to restore America to where they think it needs to be. What would your children say? What would your grandchildren say? What do your dinner table conversations look like? What do your car rides represent? I am convinced that deep in our hearts, deep in our hearts, we honestly believe that someone else can do what only God can do. And so we don't pray Because we're seeking someone else to do what only God can do. And so, yeah, the big idea may seem elementary and simple and self-evident. But why don't we live it out? Because deep in our hearts, we don't believe as a reflex of our own soul that only God can do what only God can do. Let me ask you this, friend. What would it look like in your life today? If you believe that God's mercy was your only hope, how would you pray? How would you invite your friends to pray? I want to invite you to a night of prayer that our pastors are going to be hosting on August 31st. We're calling it the family altar. It is August 31st, right, Carrie? If not, we'll tell you next week what the real date is. 
August 31st, and here's the story. Our hearts as pastors are broken over the brokenness in our homes. There is not a family that I know of in this church that is not walking through the darkness of brokenness in your own family. There are men in this room who are trapped. Trapped. And their addictions. There are wives and children who are in deep pain today. There are marriages on the brink of divorce today. There are parents who cannot sleep because their prodigals seemingly will never come home. And our pastors are burdened that we as a church would truly believe that only God can do what only God can do. And so we want to ask for the mercy of God in our homes. The mercy of God for our children and our grandchildren and our marriages. The mercy of God to move among us in a way that no man and no plan ever could. Church, we need the mercy of God. Would you join us in praying for the mercy of God in your home, in your family, for your children and your marriage? Wise people live like there is a God in heaven. Who can do what only God can do? And so they seek his face in prayer. Number two, when you believe that you have a God in heaven who can do what only God can do, we live like there is a God in heaven when we rest in God with patience. I want you to look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, then the mystery. So what do they do? They just prayed, right? Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Now, I love this passage. I, I, you don't have to love this part as much as I do, but I'm not even going to hide. I love this passage. God answers Daniel's prayer by giving him a dream of his own, right? And I love this. Do you see what's happening here? Daniel prayed. What did Daniel do next? He went to sleep. <laughs> he rested I think one of the most powerful dynamics in this entire part of the story is what Daniel and his friends didn't do. He didn't form a committee. And can all of God's people say, amen. He did not come up with a 10-step plan to save his life. He did not stay awake all night calling all of the other leaders together to form a summit. He did not worry and twist his thumbs. And I don't even know what that means. Twiddle them or whatever. Worrying about the future. He didn't get on his smartphone and try to escape from the anxieties that come from having a crazy king or post on social media all of his views about what would save Babylon. You know what he did? He prayed and then he went to bed. He waited patiently on the Lord to do what only the Lord can do. You know why? Because only the Lord can do what only the Lord can do. And friend, there is an epidemic among God's people called anxiety. 
You probably feel it. I sense this cloud of worry that hovers over almost every single person I talk to throughout the week. Just think about all the movements in our country today that seem to be motivated primarily by fear and anxiety. Every speaker, every leader who gets you to do what they're asking you to do because they whip you up into a froth of fear and worry and dread. So here's how we're going to fix it. Guys, all the political movements, all the personal improvement movements, all of the family restoration movements that prey on our fears and anxieties. Guys, it is like the church of Jesus Christ is on the verge of a nervous breakdown. If I didn't know any better, I would believe that the people of God are living like we think we don't have a God in heaven who cares for our souls. Listen to Psalm 127 verses 1 and 2. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to late, late to rest and eat the bread of anxious toil for what? Look at this. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Let's be honest with each other. How many of us are waking up early and staying up late with worry? How many of us are nervously working at something simply because we feel the need to do something? I've got to do something. I've got to do something or I'm not going to save my family. I'm not going to save my marriage. I'm not going to save this nation. I've got to do something. And God says when we work from the motive of worry, it's all vain. You know what that means? It doesn't do any good. He will build the house. He will watch over the city. We have a good and sovereign king who is in control while the world is in chaos. And do you know what God is doing? Do you want to know what God is doing? You want to know? Good, because I'm going to tell you. He's keeping every promise he's ever made to you. He is fulfilling every plan he's ever formed for you. And you know when he's doing it? Even when you're asleep. You know what he's calling you to do? Believe him. Now listen, this isn't a call to be lazy or passive or disobedient or disconnected. It is a call for us to do only what God calls us to do. And to take all of the other fear-motivated, anxiety-related, nervous workings of our life and put them away for good. It's a call to believe God by taking him at his word, resting in his promise and provision, and believing that he is at work, and then having a really good Sunday afternoon nap. Thus is the word of the Lord for Titus Green. Let me ask you this, friend. What's the thing that's keeping you up at night? And there's something I know that's keeping you up at night. Maybe I should say this. What's the thing that meets you first thing in the morning and makes you worried sick? Let me ask you this. What would it look like if you laid that thing down before the Lord in prayer and then you went about your day like there is a God in heaven who hears your prayers, who cares for your soul, Who's at work in ways you cannot see? Who's keeping all his promises and fulfilling all his plans? Truly wise people believe there is a God 
in heaven who will do what only God can do, and they live like it when they rest in God with patience. Let's close with the third thing. We live like we have a God in heaven who will do what only God can do when we respond to God with praise. Look at verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Do you see that? When God does what only God can do, people who are looking for him to do what only he can do see it. And they praise him and make it known. When God showed up, Daniel responded with praise. And he praised God a couple different ways. First, he praised God for who he is. Verse 21 says, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. We'll talk about this more in chapter 4 because this is a theme Nebuchadnezzar's learning this now, and it's going to get sealed into his mind in chapter 4. But Daniel goes ahead and praises God because of who he is. He's the God who's in control. God sets up kings. God takes down kings. God rules in the world. And if you really believe that today, what would you do? You would praise him for being God. When you see the headlines that look like a world is in chaos, you, if you believed that God is in control, would thank him that things aren't as they seem to be because we have a God in heaven who's in control. We praise him for who he is no matter what's going on around us. And then Daniel prays God for what he's done. Verse 23, to you, O God, my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have made, or you have given to me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. By God's gracious power, he gave Daniel what he needed when he needed it and not a moment too soon. And Daniel responds with praise and thanksgiving. Friend, let me just tell you this. Here's how you can respond respond today to this message. Think of what God's done for you and give him praise. Let me ask you this. What would your life look by like if you truly believe that God is who he is, no matter what the headlines say, and that he has done what he has in fact done, no matter what else might be happening? What would it look like if you believed those truths about God and your panic was turned to praise? Like, What if you left this place? And no matter what you see on the headlines about the way the world is, you believed under all that. And above all that is the truth of who God is and what he's done. And you praised him rather than panicked about that. Truly wise people believe that God is who God is, that he's the God in heaven who cares and is at work, and they respond to him with praise. And you want me to give you something really good you could start with for praising God right out of, right out of this text? You want me to give you something? I'll give you a starter, okay? Do you remember when the magicians of this world of Babylon said that no gods dwelled among men? You remember that? I hope so. It was only like 10 minutes ago. Well, they weren't just wrong, they were unbelievably wrong. Because God had a plan that he was bringing about, and it's the whole reason he was preserving Daniel and his friends. 
You see, in Jerusalem, there was a place where God made his dwelling among people. That place was the temple. And inside the temple was a place called the most holy place. Now, that was the place on earth where God's glory was displayed so fully that the priests could not even stand to minister because the glory of God's presence was so clearly known. So in order for God to dwell among his people, there was a huge curtain that had to be set up there between the most holy place and the rest of God's people. It, It kept people who were sinful like us from just stumbling into God's holy presence and being destroyed because he's holy and we're not. But you know what happened to that curtain? I'll tell you what happened to that curtain. Hundreds of years after this event occurred and those magicians spewed their confusion, Jesus Christ was dying on the cross. And God placed the sin of this world on Jesus and he punished our sin. The sin that kept us from just casually being able to enter into the presence of our holy God. That sin was placed on the cross of Jesus. And when Jesus died, he died to take that sin away. And do you know what happened when Jesus died on that cross? Something incredible happened. That curtain, the moment Jesus died, that curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That happened because God was making his dwelling not only among his people, but inside his people. It means Jesus will come to live in anyone who will trust in him as Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ as God, if you will trust in him, Jesus Christ as God will dwell in you. And do you know what that means? That means that there is a God who can do what only God can do, living in you. That Jesus living in you will do. What only Jesus can do in and through you. Guys, we call that reason to praise. So that no matter what's going on around you, no matter how chaotic the systems of this world are, no matter how confused, no matter how confused the people of this world are, there is a God whose name is Jesus who can do what only God can do, who desires to do what only he can do in and through you. Are you trusting in Jesus today? If you're trusting in Jesus, glory awaits because Christ, the Lord, is living among and in his people. Doing what only God can do. What a reason to praise. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me this morning? Father, I, I pray for the people in this room, those watching online, those who may be listening to this later in the week, Father, who have begun to hear the lies of our enemy, the lies this kingdom in chaos is offering that promise a kind of magical power to heal them and to give them meaning and pleasure and satisfaction. And their hearts are still dead and their hearts are still hopeless. And Lord, I pray 
but the truth about Jesus would invade our hearts and minds today, Father. And may we see that Christ has come to live among us, to bear our sin and shame, to make us the temples of God that Christ would dwell within. And Lord, I pray that we who believe and are trusting in Jesus would live by the power of his spirit, filled with faith to believe that that only God can do the things that only God can do and keep our hearts from turning to other places. Lord, stir us to passionate, persistent prayer. Help us to rest in your goodness and provision. And Lord, turn our hearts to to praise. Release us from the panic and fear and anxiety that surround us and turn our hearts to praise, believing you are good, you are God, and you are at work in us today, Lord. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.